Hello and welcome to Mostly Weather. My name is Doug McNeil. I'm a climate scientist here at the Met Office and I'm joined today by podcast regular Penny Tranter. Hello there. Hi, and we're very excited today to have Kate Salmon, who also works here at the Met Office. Kate, could you tell us what you do here at the Met Office? Yes, thanks. I'm a climate information scientist here at the Met Office. I work in applied science. So in applied science, we take weather and climate information and we try to make it useful for decision makers all over the world. Okay. And two years ago, I understand you did something quite exceptional. I don't think we've had anybody in the the studio that's done this before, but you, you rode the Atlantic. Yeah, so I actually finished earlier this year. But you started the year before, is That's that right? right. Okay. Yeah, so we started in December 2018. Uh, there were four of us, four women, and we set off in an eight-metre boat and rowed 3,000 miles from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean. Amazing. Okay, and I'm, I'm assuming you didn't just sort of decide to do that off the cuff. So there, <laughs> there must be a, a long process which led to this epic voyage. Yes, there was a very long process. In fact, we started planning it a whole two years before we actually set off. So something like this is very extreme and you need to make sure you're very prepared for it. Don't um, do this at home, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was actually part of a wider race called the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. So it wasn't just us. There were actually 28 other boats that took part as well. So we were part of a wider fleet but you have to make sure that you're all prepared, you're all self-sufficient because there's no support crew that will help you out if you're in trouble. How did you kind of get involved with it, Kate? Yeah, so I met um, two women down at Exeter Rowing Club when I first moved here, when I joined the Met Office. And uh, one of them was really excited one New Year's Eve. I think she may have had a few glasses of Prosecco. <laughs> oh, and the best, she... <laughs> best adventure start that's with that, how, with that kind of thing. That's very true, yeah. <laughs> And she texted me and my other rowing buddy, Kirsty, and asked us if we wanted to row the Atlantic. So we'd already done a lot of training together. We were training 10 times a week at that point wow. for a national rowing competition. So we wanted to take it to the next level. So, I mean, OK, so how far had you been rowing up to this time? Uh, what, in one go? Yes, So for me personally, uh, the longest that I'd rowed was across the English Channel in 2013 in a big wooden rowing boat. But during my training in Exeter, the most we ever rowed was five (laughs) kilometres. So we're talking about a big, big step up here to do 3,000 miles. Yes. So, I mean, what did the training involve then to be able to go and do that big step change up to 3,000 miles across the Atlantic? Well, it's it's very obviously very difficult to prepare to row for that length of time. Mm. Um, so the most I think we ever sat down on a rowing machine for was two to three hours in one go, but we would try and do that a few times a week. And we would do a lot of weights training as well, just to make sure our core strength was good and it would avoid injuries in the extreme of the Atlantic. And then in terms of our mental preparation, that was really difficult as well because we were so busy with our day jobs because we all had day jobs and also just raising the money to do the thing itself Mm. uh, took up so much time that it was very difficult to think about how mentally challenged we would be Mm. during the event. I've got so many questions to ask you about your training because I just find this totally fascinating because I read somewhere that you were using 8,000 calories a day. So in terms of food intake... How many times more than a sort of normal intake is that? That's about four times. Yeah, it's about three to four times. Obviously, it depends on you individually. So we did actually do some physiological testing at Exeter University where we were 
told to get up in the morning and go to the lab and then they measured our basal metabolic rate Mm -hmm. and then they contrasted that to an exercise we did on the rowing machine where our breath was measured and the ratios of certain gases in our breath were measured to check how much we were burning and what type of energy we burned. So all of that informed the rations that we took with us on the road. Would they be different for different team members? Yeah, we, I think we erred on the side of caution. So <laughs> we definitely took too much food. In fact, the race itself, uh, the organisers require that you take 60 days of food because you just don't know what kind of weather you're going to get, yeah. whether you're going to be holed up in a storm or whether you're going to get across in 30 days. You just don't know. Mm. Um, and and that's quite interesting talking about the weather. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's not a quiet time to go across the Atlantic, is it? <laughs> In terms of the weather patterns that you can sometimes see between the Canary Islands and the Caribbean. So I was just quite intrigued as to why the race was run at that time of the year. Yeah, so uh, the race was run, just to reiterate, was in December, January time. Mm. In fact, when you look at the hurricane season, that's the best time of year because the hurricane season ends on the 30th of November. So between the 1st of June and the 30th of November is a bad time to go for hurricanes. And then also during the winter, you get increased strength of trade winds, so northeasterly trade winds, which really help to push you in the right direction. And uh, so that's the theory. So you wouldn't want to go from west to east? No, west to east would, at that latitude would be quite difficult. And people often say, oh, weren't you cold? But actually, because of the latitude we were at, which was Canaries to the tropics um, in the Caribbean, it was very warm. In fact, we're more likely to experience extreme heat stress than we were extreme cold. Okay, well, that's interesting. And so what about all the clothing as well? Because, I mean, obviously you're having to battle waves occasionally coming over the boat. So yeah. your clothing had to so, be... So, yeah, your boat's open, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So there's there's a section of it which is open where you're doing the rowing and then you have two very small cabins at either end which are kind of coffin-sized, which you lie in to get a bit of rest. So our shifts were two hours on, two hours off okay. generally, so... And was it was it two working together and two sleeping? Yes. If yeah. we were doing a push, we would have three people rowing and one person resting, and we'd have three hours on, one hour off, and that was really punishing. <laughs> but in terms of our clothing, because it was so warm and because you're constantly moving, mm-hmm. I think I used two T-shirts and two pairs of pants for the whole journey. It was, uh, you really didn't need to wear much at all. Oh, and what about your hands? Because I'm just thinking about the oars. Yeah, our hands, because of all the training we'd done before, we actually, in the end, had quite good hand health, but you tended to get skin peeling off and calluses building up. And, yeah, some people suffered with like tendonitis in the hands because you're constantly gripping Mm, mm. so when you went to sleep you had to stretch out your fingers to make sure that you gave them some uh, relaxation time it sounds amazing and so then you know if anybody was ill you know seasickness can strike at any time and to anyone so how did you cope with anybody having any ill health or anything like that yeah so I think I was the most seasick out of all of us so it was the first sort of 48 hours that I was very sick but I knew that was going to happen because of the training that we'd done so 
I was obviously uh, had the patches on and I had seasickness tablets and I was able to keep down a bit of food and water so I just kept myself hydrated mm. and uh, it's all about the mental mm. uh, managing of the illness rather than the illness itself which is obviously very difficult but I knew that it would end after 48 hours and that my body would adjust so after that time it was better and how did you know it would end after 48 hours had you done a lot of sea training before or was yeah. that sort of people's experience um in general people's experience but it depends on who you are so some people in the fleet were sick for like five days which is a really long time oh, that's my nightmare yeah um <laughs> but I knew for me personally because I'd done a lot of research cruises on bigger ships and I knew that I got seasick for the first couple of days and then I was able to recover mm. obviously on a very small boat that we were rowing the Atlantic in it is a bit more difficult but yeah as long as you can keep your energy levels up and make sure you don't miss the rowing shift then you should be fine (laughs) (laughs) and I have to ask you once you got to Antigua what were you like when you stood on dry land after being at sea for all that time yeah especially in again in a tiny boat which is all constantly moving first of all we had muscle atrophy in our calves so our legs weren't very strong because we hadn't put any load through them for 43 days so we weren't used to standing up and it was painful actually to stand up and then we suffered from this thing called dock rock where you stand on land and you feel like you're on a boat Mm, so we were sort of walking around like drunk people (laughs) trying to (laughs) say hello to people not because we actually were drunk (laughs) just to make clear because at the end of 43 days rowing I you know maybe that would be understandable I think yeah I think we were a little (laughs) bit later on maybe even just the smell of alcohol would make us drunk (laughs) because we didn't need, need much but yeah, we would aim in a straight line and you'd end up walking mm. 90 degrees. <laughs> yeah, I, well, it, it just sounds amazing. But, uh, but I suppose also being in a confined space with three other people who presumably you knew really well. But was it as you expected? Were there any tensions or did it all go really brilliantly and everybody got on all the time? Uh, no, <laughs> that's a short answer. Um, there were certainly tensions before we left as well as on the boat because obviously the preparations themselves are very intensive and you do get to know people very well. And then on the water, although we didn't really have any equipment failures and we didn't have any really bad weather, so in general we were quite lucky, there were certainly tensions because you're pushing your bodies to the extreme, you're extremely tired, hungry thirsty hot so yes we did have rows on the boat but mm. we managed to resolve them we were the first female team to cross i know which so. is a which is an, a fantastic achievement <laughs> really is brilliant you know reading all about it you've touched upon about financing yeah so are you able to tell us a little bit about that so in order to do this race you have to raise about 120,000 pounds that's partly why it takes two years to prepare because you have to raise all this money and we did that through corporate sponsorship through a crowdfunding campaign through fundraising events and we weren't just raising money for our own campaign we were also raising money for our charity surfers against sewage Mm -hmm. because the whole reason that we were rowing the atlantic was to raise awareness of the damaging effect that plastic was having on our coastlines and we thought what better way to do it than actually rowing an ocean and seeing it firsthand so we were pinning that cause to why we were doing it and trying to involve businesses in our local area to 
encourage them to reduce their own single-use plastic. We've seen a huge interest in single-use plastic and reduction of plastic. Is that one of the things that motivated you to row for that cause? You know, what were the motivations for for rowing for that, for plastic? Because we, all of us, loved the water. We were passionate about being on the water and we're all from areas of the country which have beaches and rivers. We saw the damaging effects that plastic had firsthand, so we wanted to do something for a charity that was working at grassroots level but also nationally as well and that's why Surfers Against Sewage ticked all the boxes for us also being like a Cornwall based charity as well that's another reason why we liked that and then the single use plastics issue became so much bigger after Blue Planet as well and we thought well why not only raise money for charity but also change the place that we live for the better so we ended up starting a campaign in Exeter which is where we were from to make it an accredited plastic-free city by 2020. So that has been another campaign alongside the rowing campaign, which we were running at the same time, and it's still ongoing. You're getting a lot of engagement. I've seen this. People are thinking a lot about um, the Earth system and the climate system at the moment, and some of the people who are dealing with climate science, as you are, have seen the success of the plastic campaign. And I think we can learn from that in terms of understanding how to engage people and what they care about yeah definitely we've had huge amounts of support from people in fact when we first raised the idea we were so surprised by how much support we had from different people so part of the plastic free exeter campaign specifically was to get companies from around the exeter area as well as schools and the local council on board and we had basically no resistance from anyone in fact we've been inundated with people wanting to show their support and reduce the amount of plastic in their businesses in their schools in the council so yeah we've been really excited by how much support there is it feels like something that people can really help with in and yeah. get engaged with at grassroots level can't they they, they really want to help that's okay. right it's a it's a tangible thing that you can do unlike climate change which is potentially the communication around that is more difficult it's more difficult to show people the damage that that can do uh, with plastic you get these very powerful images through the media about wildlife that has been choked or the, the damaging effects of plastic and you can actually see it in the place that you live and so because of that I think people are very motivated to do something about it yes because when i mean when you rode across the atlantic you were seeing plastic every day as well as sea life yeah in fact um more plastic than wildlife we saw while we were rowing across so we weren't really prepared for that actually we weren't we were interested before we left as to what we might see in terms of the plastic pollution but we weren't expecting to see something or at least something once or twice a day and it ranged from fishing nets to bottles to like bits caught up in seaweed various sizes and colors and yeah you just don't know where it's come from whether it's like a passing boat or but it's the open ocean right you're, but it's you're the open ocean. how far from land are you at this point you thousands of miles away yeah. Okay. and um yeah so you're just not expecting to see so you've seen some of that uh, firsthand, but I understand that we find plastics in all sorts of lonely places in the earth system at the moment that's right i think plastic has been found in every part of the world now and including in sea ice and right through to human waste you know it's not just the large pieces we see floating on the surface it's also all of the little stuff that's below the surface which makes up I think almost 90% of plastic in the ocean so it's affecting all parts of the world not just wildlife it's affecting us as well. 
So it's, it's broken down to tiny pieces in the water. Is it and yeah. is that ongoing in the ocean? Yeah, so the larger pieces are broken down into smaller pieces, just like a rock would break down into sand. You have the same with plastic, and it breaks down into these small things called nurdles, no. which is quite <laughs> okay. an endearing name for something <laughs> oh, <dear>. that's quite <laughs> dangerous. And obviously, as many people have seen, those pieces of plastic end up in the food chain simply because marine life mistake it for food or it passively gets caught in it. It's The dangers are are clear what's not clear at the moment is how damaging that is to human health but that's an ongoing area of research so we definitely know it's damaging to wildlife and that damaging to marine life yeah but, but human health is i guess we're doing that grand experiment right now right yes yes we are and i think there are projects and currently research ongoing about microplastics in water treatment and drinking water and and knowing what effect that might have on human health at the moment the world health organization say that there's no evidence that there's a damaging effect on human health but there are people researching that as we speak okay so i've got uh, actually got a plastic pollution facts and stats from the surface against the campaign here actually kate so uh, there's some really mind-boggling numbers here so one of the things i've got every day approximately eight million pieces of plastic pollution find their way into our oceans. so okay so the oceans are a big place but it sounds like they concentrate in various places is that what are the processes that are going on which means that they concentrate yeah, I think what you're referring to is maybe ocean gyres, where ocean circulation can... Obviously, there's currents in the ocean which carry these pieces of plastic, and then they get concentrated in these areas where the circulation spirals around. And there are areas of the world where now there are these islands of plastic, so you get these garbage islands, and I think there's one in the Great Pacific Gyre, and there's also one in the Atlantic. We were further south than that gyre, so we... You're just sort of individual pieces yeah we were seeing individual bits yes but yeah those are areas which are are huge the size of hawaii and and i've got here that the plastics consistently make up to 60 to 90 percent of all marine debris so that feels like a massive volume compared to other things uh we've got approximately five thousand items of marine plastic pollution have been found per mile of beach in the uk so can we do anything to combat that here in the uk Yeah, there's lots of things we can do. And I I guess my advice to people would be not to be too overwhelmed by it, even though these figures are quite overwhelming. I would just say start small. Start looking at how you can, as an individual, make changes to your lifestyle, whether you can buy food that doesn't come in plastic packaging, for instance, because packaging actually makes up 40% of all plastic produced. And if you can avoid it, that would be a huge help individually and then obviously that will inspire people in your household so if you've got a family that would encourage them to cut back on their plastic use and then your friends and then go into your workplace here at the Met Office I alongside some colleagues have started a plastic free working group we have made some really positive changes already in the Met Office we are cutting back our single-use plastic but having a working group where we meet up every month or so means that those changes are constantly put in place and it's continually improved. So you could do something like that in your workplace or in your own local community. Like when we set up Plastic Free Exeter and we've involved volunteers from our local community and so we've talked to local businesses. So I would say, yeah, don't wait for someone to give you permission to do something. Just go and do it.
I had a great um, experience the other day. We did a corporate responsibility day in my team and we went and cleaned the beach. So yeah, we great. had a big uh, surface against sewage box and we had some collectors and rubber gloves and, and all yeah. sorts of stuff. We went and cleaned the beach, which, to be fair, was already pretty clean. And I think that they, <laughs> basically good. the tide had just gone out and, and there's not a lot of uh, places. You know, it was good. But what, one thing I did notice was that a lot of the plastic pollution that we found was fishing nets. Yeah. So how much of the plastic pollution is, you know, that kind of systemic thing that, that needs changing? That must be quite a large proportion of the plastic that's found in the ocean. Yeah, I think fishing nets, they analysed that great Pacific garbage patch in the gyre that we talked about earlier. And then they found that 46% of the stuff in that was fishing nets. And I know that is a big problem. So I would say that's obviously difficult to change if you're not involved in the fishing community. But that's something that uh, needs to be raised higher up the ranks. And perhaps it sounds like with grassroots pressure from below, you yeah. know, people are changing their own behaviour and then they're going to put pressure on that's governments right. to make to make It's very important changes. to keep putting that pressure on. And like you said, go to the beach, go to your local beach, go to your local river. You don't need to go on an official beach clean or a river clean you know, if you're going for a walk one Sunday, just take a bag with you and pick up some rubbish while you're there. You sound very passionate about plastic pollution uh, in the oceans, we've heard. I just wonder how passionate you are still about rowing, having <laughs> rowed 3,000 miles across the Atlantic. Well, I've got to say, I have actually been rowing since. I joined Exmouth Rowing Club and I do pop down there occasionally to go and have a little poodle round. So I am planning to get back into rowing, but maybe just give myself a little bit more time off. <laughs> <laughs> Coming back to your 3,000 mile row, which I love the statistics of this, that you spent 43 days, two hours and 20 minutes at sea. Yeah. You must have seen a huge range of weather and yeah. sort of waves as well, I presume, while you're out there. What was it like dealing with all the different weather that you saw while yeah, you were Yeah, well, the first two weeks, as we talked about, those trade winds were quite strong. So we had quite large waves. One wave, I remember, was the size of our boat because I remember sort of surfing down it right. and it being the whole length of the boat, which was eight metres. So that was quite scary. Yeah, <laughs> I can fun. imagine. I can um, imagine. So what was the strongest winds you were out in? I think the strongest winds we had were probably gusting 35 knots. Oh, right, which okay. Is, um, which, is, which is actually not horrendous, is it's it? It's not horrendous. So we're looking at, a, what, a 4.6, a 4.7 yeah, type so thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, but it, it's sort of, obviously, the wind's one thing, but then you have the swell and the waves, and yeah. they all interact in different ways. So sometimes you wouldn't have very strong wind, but the sea state would be quite mm. um, difficult to row in. So... I think the most difficult weather we had actually was one day we had nine hours of having to row the boat with one arm because we had a wind pushing us north and we wanted to go west and so we had okay. to keep the boat on course. Of course. And so it meant that we didn't get any sleep for about 24 hours. So you're almost sculling it, aren't you? Yeah. In order to, to Just keep, to it, keep on the, it straight. The route um, that you want to go on. Exactly. Yeah. And I think we only made about four miles that day. Right. It was very demoralising. Right. We were basically rowing to stand still. You obviously had a huge amount of equipment on board as well, you know, GPS. Yeah. I understand you were also doing social media, so you're keeping everybody up to date. We were trying like... to <laughs> <laughs> when we had the energy. I mean, it was diff very slow connection, so it was like a 90s modem type speed. And so we could only really send back two or three photos for the whole thing. 
because you just have to wait up with the satellite phone and hope that it wouldn't lose connection and course, so it was very yeah. frustrating to yeah, keep sending yeah, stuff yeah. but yeah we had gps we had a satellite phone which we were able to use to call land for weather information for mm-hmm. instance yes of course and and we had yeah a water maker so that would desalinate seawater i was going to ask you because i can't believe that you would carry gallons and gallons and gallons of water no it wouldn't be possible to take all the water we needed so yes so the water maker ran once a day for about an hour so we had solar panels on our boat that would charge batteries which would then run these pieces of equipment did you have any near misses with shipping or anything like that anything Uh, scary like that we did actually we were in uh, sort of on the edge of a shipping lane we noticed as we got closer to the caribbean there would be ships coming from south america that were going over to africa Um, We did have a close encounter with a ship. It always seemed to happen at night, actually, (laughs) because you'd have to keep a close watch on the horizon to see Mm. if there were any lights that were coming Mm. towards you. And it was very easy to confuse them with stars. So you just have to keep um, seeing if they were moving. And one ship came within half a mile of us, which sounds quite you know a decent mm. distance but when that, that is, ship is the size close, yeah. of a skyscraper you're uh, <laughs> could, yeah could they see you do you have a radar reflector or what kind of lights do you have we have some navigation lights which we had on we also had an automatic identification system and then the ship itself would we didn't have radar but they did so they did see us on that but we would always radio them to make sure that oh, they'd, they'd seen, seen us you. yeah and we did we were on a collision course with this one ship so we radioed them and then they altered their right. course slightly <laughs> you didn't have to send flares off up to them or anything no, oh, that's no, good. no flares. it just sounds a fantastic voyage and you said that you know you're rowing again now are you still in touch with your other rowing teammates yes i am in fact i'm seeing one of them on friday for a catch-up but yeah so we're all still in touch and yeah I mean this is what this is a fantastic achievement have you got any urges to go off and do something else fantastic in another sphere of your life yeah (laughs) I would um, at the moment I've got a bit of expedition fatigue but as you say I'm really passionate about this the plastics cause and especially the microplastics Mm. because I think there's so many unknowns about those and they're showing up all over the world in the most pristine environments like sea ice in the Arctic for instance so it'd be really nice to do some other expedition where you're highlighting the effects of these things on our most pristine environments and perhaps doing some more of a science investigation while I'm there so this is just an idea at the moment but so it's watch this space then as to what Katie did next (laughs) yeah so Kate you and your team were the first female team to cross the uh, finishing line on the Talisker Atlantic challenge is that right yeah but I understand you're thinking about doing some academic work on microplastics Yeah, I'm hoping uh, with the Open University as partners that we can look at how microplastics are removed in water treatment. So seeing how many microplastics are in our water, in our drinking water and how the process of uh, treating water can help to remove them. So I guess um, we've got the water cycle. So you're talking about in our domestic water yeah that's right yes and the water treatment plants you know on land yes that's right so all the way from when we drink water to wastewater as well and sewage and seeing how the processes of how we currently treat water 
removes microplastics and how that could potentially be improved. That's fantastic. And does it overlap at all with your work here at the Met Office or is it a completely separate thing? (laughs) It's a little bit separate at the moment, although I am looking at some water sector work in South Asia on a different project with work. And you're focused on uh, sort of climate change in the far future or the near future? What's the kind of timescale you're looking at there? On all timescales, really. At the moment, the project I'm most involved in is looking at South Asia, particularly in their resilience to a changing climate. So that's really looking to involve climate information in their longer term decision making in the South Asia region. And and really, it sounds like you're getting in with decision makers rather than thinking about particular weather. You're talking about how people adapt to to changes in that weather is that right yeah it's all about co-producing with people who make the decisions so instead of saying we've done some science here you go how can it be useful to you to actually ask the decision makers what decisions they make and how our science could input into those decisions to make their infrastructure and their resilience to a changing climate better fantastic well that's great well i'd like to thank you very much for coming and talking to us here at Mercury Weather. It's been absolutely fascinating and uh, I look forward to hearing about your work and to hearing about your next adventure. Thank you. That's all from Mostly Weather. Thank you to Penny Tranter, my co-host, and to Kate Salmon, our guest this week. And thanks also to uh, Claire Nazir, who produced this week's episode, and to Adrian Holloway, who edited this week's episode. Mostly Weather is a podcast by the UK Met Office.